Berkeley Yeast is back again with Sunburst Chico, the yeast you love now with a sunny burst of pineapple. This strain was bioengineered to produce ethyl esters, fragrant flavor compounds that give your beer a distinctive kick of fresh pineapple. Perfect for tropical West Coast IPAs, pale ales, and tiki-style summer crushers. Mention this podcast for 15% off your next order of Sunburst Chico when you visit berkeleyyeast.com. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for years that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and sensory properties of beverages, and the Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to meet the requirements for all brewers, so you can release your creativity. Visit Fermentus.com or explore our app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. I felt like, you know, maybe we can skip this single hill phase and jump into the seven hill phase and start to get some of that really important data earlier on. You know, we might get brewing data back on like five lines a year or something like that. But if we could get feedback back on like 40 to 60 lines a year, that would really keep the the crank turning and the rhythm of the program going and help me make decisions. This week on the show, there's a new hop breeder in town, and she's already innovating to release new public varieties faster. We discuss her impressive progress thus far, two exciting new lines to look out for, the balance of public and private breeding, how your brewery can make a difference, and more. Hi, my name is Kayla Altendorf, and I'm a research geneticist with USDA ARS in Prosser, Washington. Kayla, you're relatively new to the public hop breeding effort. I get the sense that a lot of folks are happy to have you on board and hopeful that you might be the shot in the arm that public hop breeding has needed for some time. Listeners might already be familiar with the dark ages of funding that Dr. Henning described on episode 232, and they might also know that you were hired to start up a breeding program in a facility that has been mothballed for a generation. Give us an overview of what exactly you were hired to do and where things stand in regards to propping up the only public breeding program located in the country's largest hop growing state. Yeah, that's so funny. You called it mothball for a generation. I love it. It's true. Okay. So I was hired to be a public hop breeder in the heart of the Yakima Valley growing region. Stakeholders have been advocating for a position in this location that's funded by USDA for quite some time. And that vision came to a reality in 2019, I believe. There was congressional funds allocated for two new positions in Yakima in the Yakima Valley. One for a research geneticist or breeder and another for a horticulturist to study abiotic stress tolerance. So I was hired in 2020 and arrived in Prosser in May, peak pandemic era. Um, And when I got here, I had the administrative team in Corvallis, where my unit is located, had sent me a box of post-its and pencils. Otherwise, that's all I had. <laughs> um, how, how is it that um, how is it that there was not already um, 
with with Washington, like you said, you're in the heart of hop growing, you know, USA here. H- how was there not already something there? Yeah, there was some infrastructure that um, was in place from the previous breeder, but that program had been vacant since about 2015. Okay. So some time had passed. Um, I inherited some plants and a field for sure. Um, both like a germplasm collection, uh, including lines from all over the world, as well as some advanced material that had been left over from the, f- the former breeder. And that all that had been maintained in the meantime. So I'm very grateful for that. So I had some pencils and some post-its and some plants. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, so give us some insight into, um, obviously, if, if that's all you've got to start with, you've got your work cut out for you. Um, you know, what, what have you been up to since you got hired and sort of what's the, uh, give us the, the lay of the land in regards to progress getting this place, you know, up to snuff. Yeah, so I think I would divide it up into three main themes of things that I've been working on building. The first thing I'll highlight is a new field site. So with a perennial crop, um, trying to initiate a new breeding program that can fulfill the needs of a research program for the long term, it was really important to me to make sure that it was scientifically sound Um, And had things like replication and randomization and commercial checks. And it was a little tricky trying to implement that with the existing configuration. And you can't really rip out a hop yard and then reestablish it simultaneously. You have to, like, I was given the opportunity to totally restructure the program. um, And to do that, I needed a new field site. And so I was super grateful to have the support of my stakeholders in constructing that. Um, The Washington Hop Commission helped fund the installation of 11 acres of new trellis. And um, a local grower here in Washington took on the project for me. And I was so grateful for their support. Um, And we got that established last spring in 2022. So that allowed me to completely restructure the germplasm collection so that it's replicated and can produce publications. That's something that's really important for my career with USDA is to publish. So I wanted to make sure that everything I was growing was something that could be a publication. Um, And it also allowed me to implement replication, randomization, and commercial checks in our variety um, advanced trialing system. So we implemented that and then created a dedicated seedling yard for evaluation of seedlings. And the construction of this yard also allowed the opportunity to create space for collaboration. So when folks approach me wanting to collaborate on a trial, I have a place to put it, which... Um, makes a big difference for my career as well. So I've been focusing on field site, um, which is called Pear Acres. And another really lovely thing about that site is that it allows me to have a destination where brewers and other stakeholders can come and see everything that's part of the breeding program in one spot. So that's been a really great addition to the program. The other area that I've been working on is developing a molecular lab, and my vision is to create a molecular-based breeding program for HOP, and to do this, we needed a lab space that's set up to extract DNA, run molecular markers, and also do a little bit of pathology work to support the breeding program. And so this was an effort that my supervisor established or started like about five years before it was actually complete. So things can take some time when there's multiple governments involved. Um, But we were able to renovate a lab here at IREC. Um, So um, new flooring, new cabinetry, new lighting, and it is a a lovely space to work. Um, We were able to acquire the equipment that I wanted and we designed this to to fulfill our molecular needs for many, many years into the future. So this has been an awesome resource and it actually allowed us to implement, develop and implement a new molecular marker um, within the first couple of years. So I'm excited to use this resource to implement markers for additional traits in the future. And then also um, implementing some picking and drying infrastructure. So again, a lot of really great support from our stakeholders 
who purchased a picking machine for us. And we're working on getting that in place for harvest this year. And then they also funded a custom kiln, which we're in the process of designing. And also uh, in the theme of infrastructure, we have renovated an old barn, which we call the Owl Barn, because during my interview, um, when we were visiting the site, it was an abandoned barn, kind of on the edges of the station. And there was an a barn owl living inside of it at the time. And it flew out over my head during the interview. And it was, <laughs> my supervisor was like, I, am, I imagine this can be a place for you to collect your data and store equipment. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> um, but it it has come to fruition. So that barn was renovated and is now basically the headquarters for all of our field operations. Awesome. So what would you say remains in terms of facilities, technology, or any other resources that are really needed to support your efforts? The main thing that my program needs at this point is greenhouse space. So um, I'm working with USDA and our stakeholders to get the funds and get a location to build a greenhouse um, between my program and the horticulturists. Um, his name is Paco Gonzalez. Um, between both of our programs, there's a great need for greenhouse space. And this is so part of a breeding program. I mean, from December to May, we are in the greenhouse um, rearing plants and preparing for a new generation of the breeding program. So that's a very critical part of what we do. Um, we've been borrowing space, and I'm super grateful for all the folks here at the station who have been willing to share space. Um, but there's just so much we could do if we had the full um, space that is required. Um, and then, so another thing, my colleague Paco Gonzalez here, he studies abiotic stress tolerance and the one of the best ways to evaluate abiotic stress is in a controlled environment. Um, it's hard to implement stress in a field because you don't have control of the weather. Um, so to kind of tackle some of that really basic research, we're working on establishing infrastructure to have controlled environments. So that like growth chambers and greenhouses, so we can work in, in that area. Yeah. And we're also, um, making sure that our picking machine is operational. So again, we've had a lot of support from our stakeholders. Just this morning, we had two different farms out here helping get the picking machine in place. So it's just really amazing to have everybody come together to support us. And we're just incredibly grateful for that support. Um, so we're hoping that's up and running by the fall. And then we're also working on constructing a barn just to house that as well as the kiln to keep it out of the elements and create a space where we can um, produce a quality product for our brewers who are doing evaluations. All right. Not bad for not that long on the job. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in a different location than Dr. Henning. Uh, other than location, how similar or dissimilar is your program to his? Does, does he have sort of, you know, uh, th these, the same infrastructure um, or, you know, is it, a, is it a completely different program? I would say um, Infrastructure-wise, it's similar. Um, he's been in that job for several years. Um, and so, you know, he likely went through this a little bit at the beginning in terms of building, but he also inherited a lot from his predecessor, um, Al Honnold, who was also USDA. So a lot of that equipment and infrastructure likely was transitioned to him. Um but USDA has a new presence here at Prosser, um, at least in recent history. Um, and the former program was actually WSU run. And so USDA's presence is new um, and it's also much bigger than it ever was before. Um, so having two scientists with USDA here creates a need for additional infrastructure that wasn't here before. Um, and our programs. I would say are similar. Um, we have a little bit of obviously different growing environments that we're dealing with. So John has um, 
downy mildew pressure consistently, whereas here it takes some work to um, create that pressure and allow the opportunity for selection for resistance. Um, but I have the opposite here where I can fairly easily uh, have opportunities to select for resistance to powdery mildew. So we work together, we exchange germplasm or plants um, to evaluate in our different environments. And I'm really grateful to have that collaboration. I think most listeners already know that hot breeding is a lengthy endeavor. It's not uncommon for the cycle to take 15 years to release a new hop variety. I want folks to hear about some of the things that you've already done to bring more efficiencies to the process and reduce that timeline. But before we do that, you better give us an overview of the various stages of the breeding process. Right. So in the first year is um, the first year of the 13 to 15 year cycle is to make a cross. So we first identify our selected parents um, and females are generally selected based on their performance and brewing and growing in the field. And males are selected based on their either their progeny and their performance or their siblings performance as females um, and or they are known to carry a certain resistance to a disease um, or pathogen so parents are selected the crosses are made on average the usda programs make about 30 crosses a year and Seeds are harvested in the fall after they ripen in the cones. They're threshed and cleaned and planted in the greenhouse. And they require a stratification period in a cooler. And after about three months, they're removed from the cooler, planted, um, placed in the greenhouse where they germinate and emerge. And once they have a few true leaves is when we inoculate them with the pathogen that causes powdery mildew. And we remove those individuals that are very obviously super susceptible to that pathogen. Um, in an ideal world, we will inoculate also for the pathogen that causes downy mildew and hop. Eventually, I want the program to get to a place where we can screen for both um, pathogens annually. So we'll remove the super susceptible seedlings. Um, and traditionally, we will then transplant those individuals in about mid-May into a short trellis seedling yard, and that's about eight feet tall. And so we'll get a first look at the seedlings. And generally in this phase, we're looking at whether they're male or female. Again, we get another chance to evaluate for disease resistance in the field and look at things like vigor, cone morphology, um, kind of a visual estimate of yield, and we'll make our selections. So this is the traditional pipeline, and there are some things that we're doing a little bit differently, but we'll just walk through this um, part. Sounds good. Okay. So from the ceiling yard, the plants then go into a single hill environment, and that's between five and eight feet apart. And this is on a full trellis. So this is now into the, the technically the third year. Um, and they're evaluated here for, for a couple years. And in this period, we're able to get another look at their performance. But now this time on the large trellis, we can look at yield, cone morphology, aroma. Um, it's a little tricky to brew in this phase just because the volume of cones is so limited. I think probably an ideal mature plant, you'd get about two pounds, but it's still quite small for any brewing trials. Um, and from there, the plants are then propagated either via rhizome or via softwood cutting into a seven hill plot. And this happens for a couple or the, this evaluation takes place for a couple years. And this is now in year six to eight um, since the cross was made. And this is really when you start to get a good sense of their performance in the field. And finally, getting enough volume to establish or evaluate the cones in beer. So sometimes up until the it takes up until the sixth or eighth year to actually get a sense of how the hop will perform in beer. Um, and in this case, in this stage too, is when we can get the beer in front in front of multiple evaluators at meetings and um, 
and really start to get some good feedback and um, also submit it to the Brewers Association Hop Source Program. And that's an event that takes place annually in Yakima where brewers who are in the area can come provide um, sensory feedback on our advanced lines. So if the plant performs well in the seven hill phase, it can get submitted to the Clean Plant Center Northwest where that program will start to eliminate any viruses or viroids that have um, that the plant has at that stage. And that can take a couple of years. Unfortunately, that process can be a little bit finicky. Um, but once it's released from the Clean Plant Center is finally when we can evaluate them on farm. And this is the really telling stage because we can see how it performs when it's amongst um, many plants of its own type. And um, our pathologist, Dr. Dave Gent, has told me many times that sometimes you don't really get to see its full resistance or susceptibility until the plant is surrounded by itself um, or clones of itself. So sometimes we can be surprised at this late in the game um, about different disease pressures that might take place. And then we can get grow, uh, feedback from the growers on how it performs in the field, how it picks, how it dries. And then um, we have several acres. Usually these plots are one to two acres across multiple states. And finally, is when we that's when we have enough volume to really distribute um, and get lots of feedback from brewers. Let's hear more about seedling selection because I believe that's one of the areas where you've made some changes to the process. Yes. So my field site is located amongst a lot of commercial hop yards and having males in the seedling yard can be problematic for my neighbors because I don't want pollen um, to be impacting the quality of their hops, but also my own hops. My fields um, are close together. And so I, I'm also evaluating my advanced lines adjacent to my seedling yard. So I really am interested in keeping pollen at a minimum in that location. And so um, I noticed that we were spending quite a bit of time constantly cutting back the males in our seedling yard. And in my program, um, I'm typically limited in terms of labor. And so the more efficient that I can make these different processes, the better. Um, and so one of the areas that I worked on um, with several collaborators over the last year was to develop a molecular marker to select for males early in the program. So typically we don't see whether the plants are female until we see them flower, which takes place in July and August. Um, and seedling yards are a lot of work. Um, they require a ton of like hoeing and cultivating to to keep weeds at bay. Um, you have to string them, train them, irrigate them. Um, so it's a lot of labor. Hops are incredibly labor intensive. Um, it's probably even more the case for you at this scale, right? Because you don't have a lot of the same equipment and stuff that would go would would work in a in a commercial at scale hop yard, right? Exactly. And a lot of private programs are located on farms where there's already crews in place to help with weed control and help with stringing and training. But in the case of this program, it falls on us primarily to maintain them. And so it's, you'll see me and also my technician, Anna, out there doing a lot of this work and definitely with the support of Summer um, employees that we hire through WSU. So it's 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 us out there doing this work, which is great. Um, we get to know the plants really well. It's very hands-on, but it's a lot of work for sure. Um, so yeah, one of the areas where we thought we could increase efficiency is to eliminate the males prior to planting. So in 2022, about 30% of our seedling yard was male. Um, and so the vision is to make or to evaluate more females in the same amount of space. So breeding is a numbers game. Um, so the, the more individuals you evaluate, the more likely you are to identify the thing you're looking for. So um, having detected the males early allows us to apply different selection intensities on the different sexes. 
So we might be looking for disease resistance and we could more intensely select among the males or within the male um, population um, to carry fewer of them forward or have a more intense selection on the males um, because that might be the only trait we're really looking for in that cross. So it allows us to apply different selection intensities within the different sexes and then also allows me to plant the males in a location that um, is separate from this high intense, highly um, commercial agricultural area and allows me to grow them next to one another and make selections within them. Um, so do you want to know how we developed the marker? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Perfect. So we, when we started the program, one of the things I really wanted to do was to make sure that we had a solid collection of germplasm. And the term germplasm just refers to basically a collection of different hop lines that's highly diverse. So we worked um, to collect new lines from the, the field that I inherited here in Prosser, from the germplasm collection that the USDA maintains at the National um, Clonal Plant Germplasm Center as well as from John Henning's program in Corvallis and the National Clean Plant Center, or the, sorry, the Clean Plant Center Northwest. So we visited all those different sites, took cuttings, took rhizomes, brought them all back here to Prosser and propagated them up to create replication. And while we did that, we took tissue from each of those individuals and had them sequenced using this technology called genotyping by sequencing. And Using historical records, we knew whether a lot of them were male or female. And we were able to combine our genotype data and our phenotype data, and the phenotype in this case was sex. And in a collaboration with Dr. Nala Basile, and she's a scientist at NCGR or the Clonal Germplasm Repository in Corvallis, and her postdoc, Dr. Sean Clare, um, he ran an association mapping. Um, a genome-wide association mapping study where we correlated the phenotype to the genotype. And he found a really significant marker that was associated with sex on the, on the sex chromosome of HOP. And um, because we're, we're really interested in efficiency, we wanted to make sure that this marker could be implemented on, um, on many individuals. Um, and so we needed to make sure that it was cheap and fast. And so we evaluated several different published and adapted methodologies for DNA extraction and um, implemented the best approach in our lab. And we were able to determine sex on 94 individuals in less than two hours. Um, and so we were actually able to implement this in our seedling population for this year. So our seedling yard should be primarily male free, um, <laughs> male free. And yeah. the accuracy in um, when we validated this in the past was about 98%. That's awesome. Good work. Coming up. We were super excited to see that the sample from Roy Farms ranked first in the hop source analysis. It has a very tropical stone fruit aroma. This line is commercially available on a really small scale. We are actively seeking brewing evaluations on that line. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, proud distributor of New Zealand Hops Limited, who invites you to experience Nectaron, an aromatic New Zealand hop drenched by tropical waterfalls of grapefruit, passion fruit, pineapple, and peach. Nectaron is in stock and ready to ship. 
So order now and unlock the delicious citrus potential of your next IPA or New England IPA. Contact your BSG sales rep with any questions or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops to learn more. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their Extreme Flex Beverage Transfer Hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy, clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. Things change fast in the hot market. You want to be sure you're getting the best quality and price. Visit the Lupulin Exchange where you can find every variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, lot quality, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupion Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has its spring meeting at Shell's Brewery in New Ulm, May 25th. District Rocky Mountain meets June 1st at Holidayly Brewing in Golden, Colorado. District Southern California meets June 3rd at Gamecraft Brewing in Laguna Hills. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 8th. District Southeast meets June 10th in Miami. District Philadelphia's annual golf outing is June 23rd in Barnesville. District Michigan's Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day raw materials symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids, October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. back to the show. Um, okay. Um, I guess now talk about the work you've done in regards to optimizing the selection environment itself. All right. So typically from the seedling yard, we go to that single hill phase and prior to getting to the seven hill phase, which is where we really start to get sufficient volumes for brewing, get data for publication and implement replication. So I look at the single hill phase and I wonder what value it provides. And I'm sure there's some, of course, this has been a long time method that's been used in hop reading. So perhaps there's something I'm I'm missing. But here in the Yakima Valley, we can see a lot. I was really surprised, actually, about what we can see in a first-year seedling plant in terms of cone morphology, yield, vigor, disease resistance. So I felt like, you know, maybe we can skip this single hill phase and jump into the seven hill phase and start to get some of that really important data earlier on. And hops are 
hop is really quite easy to propagate um, via softwood cutting or via rhizome. So I thought, you know, it's possible we could make this jump in a shorter amount of time. So, but of course, as a scientist, we have to study this before we can really be sure um, and collect some, some solid data to inform this decision. And so we implemented a trial, which we are referring to as the predictive ability trial. So this trial includes seven different public genotypes or hop lines that vary for their use. So we have some alpha types, some dual purpose types, and some aroma types. And we planted these in the same year in five different growing environments. So we were simultaneously evaluating these plants in a seedling yard at one and a half and two foot spacing in a seven hill plot environment and in the single hill environment, which was at five feet or seven feet. And I got these distances um, by speaking with other breeders in the area and kind of getting a feel for what people were doing. So we have our first year of data from this study, and we found that traits like yield um, were not as predictive as we would like. So genotypes or hop varieties that yielded re really well in the seedling yard were not always the ones that yielded really well in the greater spacings, in the single hill spacing. So this tells us that if we put all of our efforts into selecting in that seedling yard, there might be some things we're missing when it comes to yield. Um, we might select an individual that is might not be the best. So there might be value to evaluating them in, in the single hill stage to get a better assessment of yield. However, um, if we selected, say, the top three of the seven that we evaluated, we would have gotten two right. We would have selected the two best. If we had selected three, we would have been correct 66% um, of the time. So not so bad. And the fact that yield is variable across these environments is not surprising. This is a type of study that has been done in a lot of other crop species and yield is just a really messy trait. Um, that's a well-known fact in, in plant breeding. Makes sense. However, looking at um, cone morphology, we found that there were no differences across the different spacings within the same year. So that suggests that if we see a cone in the seedling yard that's super small and not likely to survive well throughout the picking process and remain intact, which brewers and growers prefer because it prevents yield loss and is also just um, something that brewers look for in terms of um, kind of visual appearance of the hop, so we found if we see that in the seedling yard, we can be pretty confident that in the next phases of the breeding cycle, it will likely still have small cones. Um, and that would go, that would be the same case for large cones as well, or cones that are really open and light and fluffy, which are also more likely to break apart in picking. Um, so we can, based on the data for our first year, and of course, we're going to do this again in a second year. Um, but we can feel pretty confident that the cones we're seeing in the ceiling yard are representative of how, of how they'll look in later stages of the breeding program. Okay. So, so, I mean, what's your, are you thinking like, um, you know, okay, we do this a couple more times and then we kind of, you know, we, we, we just stop doing the single hill altogether if it works out or are you going to just do less of it or what are you thinking? Well, I, didn't really have the luxury of completing this study before I jumped into the breeding program, which we're doing both of these at the same time. Okay. Um, so in an ideal world, I would have spent a couple years evaluating this and answering these important questions about what is the be best method for selecting or the best environment for selecting. Um, so I have jumped in full <laughs> in full. I mean, I based my decision in part on this first year of data. Sure. But also, um, in speaking with other breeders, I I felt pretty confident about the decision. But yeah, this this year in our Seven Hill nursery will be lines that were seedlings last year. Essentially, you're saying that's going to potentially shave what like up to 
a couple of years off of this process? Yeah, that's the goal. Um, I think the main thing that I'm excited about is being able to grow these in a, in a, to be able to produce a sufficient volume to get them into the hands of brewers earlier. So you can get feedback early. Yeah. 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 And awesome. I just want to say like, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying this thing and I hope it works. Um, there's obviously things that we will miss, but I You're think miss stuff no matter what, I mean, that's like you said, it's a numbers game. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, um, like, I, I guess I want to say that I know, like, this isn't going to be perfect, but I think the benefits outweigh the costs. Okay, awesome. That kind of leads into my next question, which um, I was going to ask you how you go about deciding which cultivars are worth pursuing from an aroma standpoint, and whether or not there are any opportunities to emphasize aroma earlier in the cycle. And to me, it sounds like what you just described is is exactly that, right? You're You're able to produce sufficient volume where there can be some evaluation of aroma at least you know a couple of years sooner than you would have otherwise is there anything else you can do or you've thought about doing to sort of you know move that aroma analysis further up in the cycle because as we all know that's what the average craft brewer really cares about mhm yeah i think for me for this program, our main source of aroma feedback comes from the Brewers Association hop source analysis. Okay. And so in the ceiling or the single hill phase, there's that's not even enough to really submit to the hop source program. So they need more cones and can be produced in either of those selection environments. Um, so the sooner we can get them into the seven hill phase, the sooner we can get solid aroma data as well as brewing data. So another thing that I have been doing is obviously like building my own skill and my skill in that I have on my team um, for aroma, like internally. So kind of quick and dirty running through the field several times a week, smelling the seedlings and identifying things that I think stick out as unique. But I've also had help from brewers in the area who have been willing to come out and assist with that process, especially as I've been learning and getting accustomed. Um, I didn't have hop experience before I started this job. so And they don't teach you about sensory necessarily in plant breeding graduate school. So I've had to learn some of this stuff on the job, which has been really fun, definitely challenging. Um, but I'm really grateful to be in this area where there's a lot of brewers in the area around the time of harvest. And I encourage folks to schedule a time to stop by and kind of help help out with this process. Kayla, tell us about any varieties in the pipeline that you think might be game changers. I inherited a lot of germplasm, both from the former Washington State University breeding program, as well as lines from my collaborator, John Henning, that he had been evaluating here in Washington. So two of the lines that we're most excited about at the moment include 84A and 333. So I'll start off with 84A. This was a line, the full name is 2001-006-084A. And this is a line that my colleague, Dr. John Henning developed in 2001. And that means 2001 is when the first cross occurred, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And um, he had removed this line from his Oregon testing sites. And just because the the nature of what was going on here in Washington, it just kind of stuck around. And it was something that really has stood out to me since the beginning, um, since I got here, because it yields really well. It's a beautiful hop when it's growing in the field. It has great cone morphology and the aroma is unique. So it has a really high geraniol content and the aroma is very floral. And I've also heard it described as lemongrass and rose. And I just, I really like this hop. I think it has great agronomic characteristics. It's late maturing and it yields really well. And it has and brewers always tell me they want something unique, and I think this is unique. Um, it was brewed for the Winter um, Hop Research Council meeting, and it was evaluated there, and it got some good feedback. And 
to me, it was so fun for the first time in this job to taste a beer and know like that is the hop that I watched grow in the field and smelled and gauged its harvest timing and evaluated it in the kiln. And um, so that was so fun. I think the aroma for that hop really translated to the beer. Awesome. The other one is 333. And this was a cross developed by Washington State University. The cross was made in 2011. And this line really gained traction during the time in which there was not a breeder here, but the lines were being managed here at Washington State University and still were being submitted to Brewers Association Hop Source. And so this line repeatedly has shown up as a high ranking line in that analysis and was actually in the Clean Plant Center being cleaned up when I got here. Um, and it recently graduated from that program and is on farm at Roy Farms and at Gooding Farms. So Roy Farms in Washington and Gooding Farms in Idaho. And is also being evaluated in John Henning's small test plot in Oregon. So this line, we were super excited to see that the sample from Roy Farms ranked first in the hop source analysis. And um, this line is commercially available on a really small scale through the Hop Research Council. So folks are interested in getting their hands on that. Um, we are actively seeking brewing evaluations on that line. And it has a very tropical stone fruit aroma. And I am continuing to evaluate its performance in the field. So it's kind of a unique situation to come into a program and have an elite line that's being grown on farm um, and seeing it really for the first time. Um, so as a breeder, that's kind of an interesting situation to be in. But um, I am watching this line very closely and working very closely with the farmers that are growing it to to get their feedback and make sure that we're we're satisfied with the agronomics of this line before we release it. So 84A is in the Clean Plant Network. And we're excited for that one to get cleaned up so that we can start to evaluate it in more locations. It's in Prosser in 50 Hills. And um, this spring, it will be planted in Toppenish in 50 Hills as well. So it will be available on a small scale this year. But I'm excited to get this out onto a greater um, number of acres on farm. And then 333 is available on a larger scale on, I think, about four acres altogether. So what stands in the way between 333 and an actual formal release with a name? I think additional brewing evaluation and then another year on farm. So last year was what we call its baby year, which is a funny term that we use that as a plant scientist, I'm just like, we should call it juvenile, but I'm fine with baby. I'll jump on board. <laughs> um, so it was in its baby year on farm. And it yielded a little bit low. Um, it was also a, a late spring that turned hot quickly. And so I just, as a breeder, obviously, I want to make sure that what I release is agronomically sound. So we're going to continue to evaluate this for at least one more year, maybe two more years, and working closely with those growers to get their feedback and visiting the plots. Um, to make sure that this is a good agronomically sound hop that picks well, dries well, yields well, and has disease resistance. I understand from my previous interview with Dr. Henning that he's done a lot of work related to gene sequencing. How does or will John's efforts in that area impact your work? So John and I um, are working together to try to implement some markers in hop breeding. So just as one example, John and my colleague, Dave, who's our plant pathologist with USDA, he's also located in Corvallis. Prior to me starting this position, they had found a marker for powdery resistance to powdery mildew. And so they identified this marker in a greenhouse environment, but an important step of validating a marker is to evaluate it in a field environment. And so that's something that we're doing here in Prosser for this next two years is inoculating those plants and 
ensuring that that marker is effective in a field environment as well. And if it is, that's something we can implement into our breeding pipeline as a, as a molecular marker, much like we did with the male marker. Um, and with the equipment we have in our lab, we can run several markers at the same time. So that's something we could relatively easily implement. Um, so I would say I'm like building on what John has done and working with him to try to bring some of those mark some of those markers into practice. Um, and also we're developing or looking for new markers. So I have a project also with Dave, Dr. Dave Gent and his team trying to identify new sources of resistance to powdery mildew um, using a multi-parent mapping population. So looking at males that his group has identified over the last several years and trying to uh, males that are resistant to all the known races of powdery mildew and looking at the genetic mechanisms underlying those traits and trying to also implement implement those in our marker assisted selection pipeline. I think by now we're all aware of the massive shift that's occurred from public to private varieties. Why is it that the private hop breeding companies have released so many more varieties versus the USDA's public breeding program? I think um, that's a complicated question, but I'll do my best to answer, um, at least explain some ideas. So I think one thing is that a little bit of right place at the right time um, with the craft brewing boom, I think there were some private programs that had already growing and in place some varieties that were very interesting to brewers at the time. Um, and I, so I think there's a little bit of that. Another aspect might be uh, um, resources. So as you mentioned, likely covered in a previous episode with John is that there's been some fluctuation in the support for public hop breeding over the history of the programs. And so I think that likely played a role. And then also, I think in the one area where the public program has been working to improve over the last several years is access to brewers and brewer feedback. So I think the nature of some of the hop breeding companies, because a lot of them are growers or merchants or both, they are in communication with a lot of brewers and they had access or still have access to get their hops in the hands of brewers early and get feedback on them and have brewers market them and promote them and demand them. So I think like interaction with brewers is another area. Like like I said, the public program is working on improving that, but I think that can make a huge difference because um, brewer preference is really the make or break of a hop variety. So having that interaction is really important, and it's something that has been a major area of focus for the public program and is also something that I'm really trying to build as well. So I always encourage folks to stay in touch, stop by, engage with the public program, because I think that's going to be really important for the success of the program. All right. Awesome. On episode 232, Dr. Henning described the role that the USDA public program plays in supporting private breeding companies and how most, or maybe maybe it was all, of the germplasm used to produce proprietary varieties has come from the USDA. Please correct me if I got any of that wrong. From my perspective, this seems like a pretty unfair one-way street. The USDA has basically given private breeders the tools they need to privatize hops in this country. And now that's not your fault and there's nothing you can really do about that. But I want to ask you specifically about that one-way relationship. Mm -hmm. Would it benefit your program and John's or anyone else at USDA if those private breeding companies allowed the USDA to access their germplasm once a proprietary variety goes off patent. All right. Um, well, I will start off 
by addressing kind of the one-way street relationship. I think starting this position, I was nervous what to expect um, coming again, being new to hops and knowing a little bit about the dynamics of the public-private component of hop production. Um, I was nervous, like, well, how will people perceive this program, perceive me as a breeder? But I've been really impressed and grateful by the support that I've received from the public, or sorry, from the private programs. Um, folks have offered to help me on many occasions, um, especially as I've been getting going, like things from pelleting my hops. Like it's taken me a really long time, for example, just to get my pellet machine connected. Uh, so folks have really stepped in to help me early on. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, and that's just one example, but the community here has been extremely welcoming and extremely supportive. So just wanted to kind of mention that. Um, and it's true for the lines that we can identify a pedigree for that are private, they are traceable in some cases back to the USDA germplasm. Some are one or two generations removed and some obviously we don't know the pedigree. But that's just kind of in a way how breeding works um, and publicly available resources are meant to support the industry. And that happens in a lot of different crops. It's not necessarily unique to hops. I would say that this transition and I hope in like for the case of my program that it doesn't swing entirely private. And I think the industry really wants to have a balance between the two, but that that's happened in other species. Like if you think about corn and soybean, for example, a lot of those are the industries are primarily uh, proprietary. So, um, but like I said, I think there's a lot of support for the public program. I think people want it to be successful. They recognize the importance. And I think in, in the case of my program and John's, um, we have, I think one thing that's unique is that we have access to a lot of collaborations in the public sector. So I work closely with a virologist, a pathologist, an entomologist, a horticulturist, genomicist, germplasm curator. Like I have a lot of access to a, a really broad set of expertise. And through collaborations, I can implement those expertise into what I'm doing in the breeding program. And I think that's a unique aspect that, you know, not a lot of private companies can hire all of those scientists. So I think that's one area where we can provide benefit um, to the industries by having a unique set of expertise. Um, and the one-way street thing, I'm trying to think about that. So, well, yeah, what I, I, mean, I, you know, the, I mean, the big question is, is really, you know, just honest answer. Like, you know, if you, if you had access to, you know, the private germplasm, once they're, once they're, I mean, obviously they've got their, their patent for a certain number of years, but once, mm -hmm. once a variety goes off patent, you know, wouldn't it be beneficial to your program and, and to any of the USDA efforts to, to, to have access to that germplasm? Absolutely. And I know that's the case in other species where, um, I mean, specifically, I was trained in a wheat breeding lab that was public. And when, when different varieties came off patent, they become part of the crossing block. So I'm honestly not entirely sure, like, why that's not the case in hop, but I think there's certainly precedence for this in other crops. And um, of course, I would be interested. I mean, the more variation and that we can incorporate into our breeding program to meet our different objectives, the better. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like it would be, you know, would help your numbers game and which would then ultimately help everyone else in the end too. So um, that's why I ask. What do you need from listeners to make your breeding program the best it can be? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> so the first thing is probably engagement. So 
developing a relationship directly with brewers and getting that really critical data on performance that I don't have the infrastructure or personnel to acquire. So we don't have a brewing program. I wasn't trained as a brewer. Maybe someday we'll get to the point where we can have that on site, but uh, my expertise is breeding and that's, that's what we're focusing on. But I do need assistance in getting that critical evaluation data. And for me, having consistent evaluation year after year will help me maintain the rhythm of the breeding program. So one of the things that I observed when I started is there's just a lot of backlog. And I think that's because of the number of years it takes to evaluate and develop a new line. And the fact that, you know, we might get brewing data back on like five lines a year or something like that. But if we could get feedback back on like 40 to 60 lines a year, that would really keep the the crank turning and the rhythm of the program going and help me make decisions based on one or two, three years of data, as opposed to holding on to things forever. So I think engagement, communication, brewing, just like staying in touch and looking for opportunities to engage with us and provide that data. And the mechanism for doing that is through the Hop Research Council. So the Hop Research Council helps coordinate a lot of those trials and um, kind of tells us like where to ship hops and collects that data and returns it back to us. So if you're interested in participating in that, you can contact the Hop Research Council or contact me or both, and I'll make sure that that connection gets made. Um, so that's the main thing is feedback. The second thing is, and I think the industry has done an awesome job with this, but is it is um, kind of exposure and communication. So things like this podcast, having the chance to get the word out about who we are, what what we're doing um, is always very helpful as well. I think and in some cases, like folks aren't aware of that there is a public program or that there is a public hops and private hops. Um, so I think getting the word out and allowing like networking, getting to know me and getting me getting to know brewers via conferences, presentations, podcasts, all that kind of stuff helps a lot. Um, so feedback and brewing exposure, staying in touch, come visit, help with selection, contribute, tell me what you want is another thing too. So I can start to make selections in the direction that brewing trends are going. Um, so I think, I hope I can sum, I summed that up in a concise way, but I think it boils down to feedback, staying in touch and communication. Awesome. Kayla, you're a busy lady. I don't know how you do all this stuff. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great team. That's how. I'm really grateful for the support that my program has received from the hop growing community here in the Yakima Valley. I've had a lot of growers stop by, offer help. A lot of growers like teach me just the basic stuff about growing hops. Um, and I'm so, so grateful for the support that this program has received. Um, we also receive funding and support from the Hop Research Council, the Brewers Association, Washington, Idaho, and Oregon Hop Commission. The Hop Quality Group has also supported my program in terms of getting equipment in place. This, and I also have funding from the Specialty Crop Research Initiative, as well as a lot of support from Anheuser-Busch, specifically with regards to getting equipment in place as well to make sure that my program has what it needs. So very grateful for all of the support financially and just showing up and um, contributing to field needs, big and small. And then um, I want to make a shout out to our biological science technician who um, runs the day-to-day -day activities in our lab. Her name is Anna Tawrill, and I'm so grateful for her contributions. Getting a program started from scratch is no easy task, and every single thing in our lab and field has been purchased by Anna. And um, she also supervises our summer employees and interns who do the, the daily work of um, planting, harvesting, stringing, training, irrigating, um, and data collection. So super grateful for the team that we've developed and also my colleagues here at the station and in Corvallis who have um, 
provided and shared infrastructure and expertise to get this thing off the ground. That was Dr. Kayla Altendorf here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more, check the show notes for a link to her presentation from the 2023 Master Brewers Eastern Technical Conference. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Keep 